this again. Good morning. While I'm turning here, I will let you know at the back, our Table Talk subscription for November finally came back in, so if you're looking for one of those for use for family devotions, by all means grab one, and we'd encourage you to pick up your own subscription if and when you're ready, Uh, but we are providing a few copies as a church in the meantime. So last week we looked at the five solas of the Reformation from Ephesians 2, and that was kind of a one-off Sunday, and we're back in our series now in Matthew chapter 4, so I'll give you an opportunity to turn there. Uh, We're back in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be picking up in verse 12, going through to the end of the chapter. So if you want to get in your Bibles there, and then once you're ready, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the infallible and inerrant words of God. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And may God bless the reading of his word. So in Matthew chapter 3, we had learned that Jesus left the northern country of Galilee and came down to the south to be baptized by his cousin John in Judea. And from there, he goes into the Judean wilderness for his period of temptation, his period of testing. Uh, And now this passage picks up there, and it starts with the arrest of John the Baptist, and then with Jesus withdrawing back to Galilee in the north. In the first four verses, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. So Jesus' family had settled in Nazareth when they returned from Egypt. uh, And this was their way of staying safe from Archelaus who was ruling in the south. And so Jesus had come back south for his baptism, but now he's back up in the north in Galilee again. Uh, But now he goes even further north from Nazareth up to Capernaum. 
And I don't know if you're visual people like me, but here's one way I thought about, you know, often here growing up about Jesus' travels and what, what's where and does it really matter. Um, I visualized it this way. If this is not helpful, drop it out of your mind. If it's helpful, then maybe it'll help stick. Uh, the region maybe would actually work a little bit like Manitoba. All the action is in the south, right? What's in the south? Winnipeg, Steinbeck, all the action. The civilized people are in the south. You go up to Gimli, it's getting pretty sketchy. <laughs> And then you go up to Thompson, and now you've got really rough people. Or you could go to Churchill. Well, that's really rugged. Now you're up by the sea, right? So picture it that way. The south is the big cities. It's the urban area. Uh, and as you go further north, it gets rougher and rougher until you're right on the water. And typically, port towns, shipping towns, tend to be uh, on the more rugged side of things. So if that helps you, great. Uh, that helped me visualize uh, the significance of Jesus' kind of north and south travel. Uh, and Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, and that's getting to be quite a remote area, quite far from Jerusalem and from the cities of the south. And this is the area, and again, what we're trying to do very intentionally is showing that the Bible is one story. And there's significance in the New Testament of what we learned about as kids in the Old Testament stories. Uh, if you go into, and you don't have to, you may if you want, but in Genesis 49, uh, we have the account of Jacob blessing his sons, and he gives them all a land inheritance. Uh, and in the north region, where Jesus now is, uh, he gives to his two sons, Zebulun and Naphtali. And Jesus' ministry is generally considered to last approximately three years, uh, and it kind of works in thirds. The first year of his ministry is in relative obscurity. He's up north, uh, fairly obscure ministry, his second year of ministry, he's gaining popularity, he's gaining notoriety, people are hearing about him, word is traveling, and the last year of his ministry is marked by lots of controversy, lots of standoffs, uh, and that eventually culminates in his death. And so we are now embarking in the first year of Jesus' ministry, which is in relative obscurity up in the north, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this does have prophetic significance because Matthew is going to quote from Isaiah, two places in Isaiah, uh, to show the significance of where Jesus is starting his ministry. In verse 15, he's going to quote Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, and then uh, later he quotes Isaiah 42, 7. And so at first here, this first quote, the first section, comes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So Isaiah takes note that while this region was in anguish and was uh, often in contempt, uh, there is no more gloom. Things are going to be made wonderful and glorious. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll often know that God often, uh, when he's giving a territory or a land to his people, he tells them, stamp out all the idolatry. Don't leave anything left. No compromise, no negotiation. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of the idolatry all the way. And God's people always listen to a T, right? Unfortunately not. Very many times there's some kind of a negotiated settlement or they compromise or they start letting their children intermarry uh, with the pagan people around them. And Zebulun and Naphtali were two tribes that were notoriously guilty of this crime, of compromise. 
of intermarriage. And they do pay the price for their cowardice. We've also talked as we've gone along here, uh, particularly in the book of Daniel, takes note of this period of time between the Testaments when this area uh, of Israel gets batted around by these world empires who kind of come and go. And in the time that the Assyrians have this land, it is an especially difficult time for these two tribes, for this northern region, uh, as they are treated brutally and in slavery. So they pay a heavy price for their compromise. And yet, in the providence of God, even though there's Gentiles in this area, uh, and there shouldn't be, remember there shouldn't be, but in these northern tribes, uh, in the north here by Galilee, it's kind of a borderland, and because of past history, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles are intermingled in this area. Plus, it's a, a passageway into Israel. So Jews and Gentiles frequently crossed paths in this northern region, and this is where Jesus starts his ministry. So in the providence of God, even though these Gentiles shouldn't be there, God is pleased to show his mercy in the situation. And there's one reminder again that that we come across frequently, whether it's on the grand scale of redemption or whether it's in our own lives, is that God is merciful. God takes us where we are, not where we should have been. Zebulun and Naphtali should have been acting differently, but God takes us where we are, not where we should have been. And so God is pleased to work in this region to start his ministry through Christ here. Matthew always has his Jewish audience in mind, and he's very careful to keep showing the continuity and the connection between New Covenant and Old Covenant, between Christ and the history of Israel. And Matthew's Old Testament, his very careful Old Testament scholarship, reveals that even in the Old Covenant, Gentile inclusion was in view all along into the people of God. Isaiah himself saw it. Galilee was, again, this border area where Jews and Gentiles frequently cross paths. And so from a symbolic standpoint, it actually makes sense that Jesus begins his ministry here as a kind of bridge to including Gentile people into his church, into the people of God. This isn't just a national gospel. This is a gospel for Gentiles as well. And of course, this isn't new. Isaiah saw it. The prophets of old saw it. And it's fitting uh, that Jesus expands... uh, his ministry in this area. And of course, talks about the darkness that's in this region, and, if, and we know as Christians, we know that the darkness wasn't just uh, limited to this one region, but darkness has enveloped the entire earth. It's enveloped everything after the fall. So in that sense, we are all in darkness. Darkness had covered the entire world. And here comes the light. And we know that where light and darkness are contrasted, light always wins. Just by the nature of the thing, uh, we've discussed this in Sunday school, darkness isn't a thing. Darkness is a privation. It's a negation of light. So the presence of light means automatically the darkness is defeated. And of course, light can have varying intensity. Uh, But if you think about it, the presence of light automatically overcomes darkness in a way that darkness cannot overcome light. Our family went on a a holiday in South Dakota a number of years ago, and there's lots of cool caves and places you can go underground uh, in South Dakota, and we went on this one cave tour, and we're deep in the cave, I don't know how many hundred feet below ground we were, and and way deep in, and there's stair railings, and there's lights on everywhere, Uh, and then at one spot, they stop you and say, okay, kids, make sure you're close to your parents, parents, grab a handrail, we're going to turn off the lights. Now, if you want to see dark, that's dark. 300 feet below the ground, you know, the, cave, the, the opening to the, the cave is closed. That is dark. That is absolute pitch black. 
And whether you overcome that with a candle or a floodlight, uh, you can't not see the light once it's there. You can't not see it. Even a candle is visible from a long distance when it's that dark. So light, by its very nature, overcomes darkness. And as darkness has overcome not just this region, but the world, now the light of God is starting to shine in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew goes on in Isaiah 42. Uh, He quotes verses 6 and 7 here. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so again, we see the theme of freeing people from darkness and from captivity, and this theme emerges yet again. And in the time that the Assyrians were in this area, these people in particular in this region faced the heavy burden of what it was like to be in darkness, what it was like to be slaves. And this is the place, prophetically, uh, that Christ is ministering to now as he uh, shines this light, as he begins his ministry of freeing people from the burden of the curse of sin. Verse 17 says that from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this should sound familiar, right? This is the same gospel that John was preaching out in the desert when Jesus went down for baptism. This is the gospel. Reflecting on the ministry and on the preaching of Jesus, it becomes clear that things like repentance are emphasized when it comes to conversion. And I've, I've shared this before, and I don't know how much to, to share again, but so often our ways of presenting the gospel are sometimes quite at odds with the way the, the, the characters in the Bible present the gospel. Jesus and John preach a gospel of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what do we frequently do? I'll give Jesus 40 days. 40 days he'll change your life, I promise. And if not, here's your no money back guarantee. Okay, that, That's not how the That's not how Jesus preaches himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel presentation in the the Bible involves repentance. It involves a change of heart, a change of mind. And it's clear that two central themes all through the New Testament, but certainly in Matthew's gospel as he ties the significance of Jesus to the Old Testament, are the themes of kingdom and covenant. And the gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus is preaching throughout his whole ministry. I gave a definition of covenant uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, if you want a, a simple definition of kingdom, this maybe doesn't encapsulate everything, but if you want to write down a simple definition of the kingdom of God, it's this. It is the rule and reign of Christ over his creation. That's the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of Christ over his creation. And so in that most general sense, we could see everything is in the kingdom of God. What's immune? The furthest a satellite can look out into space is part of Christ's kingdom, part of what he has created where he is pleased to glorify himself. And yet, this is tied here with personal conversion. So how does personal conversion serve this kingdom? Well, here's how it serves the kingdom. Because it positions us in this kingdom as, uh, as subjects of God, as children of God, as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So it gives us the eyes to see the significance of Christ's rule and reign. And so in another sense, as the gospel goes out and frees people from the bondage and the blindness and the darkness and the burden of sin, the kingdom of God becomes more and more visible. It becomes more and more manifest. It comes sharper and sharper into focus. 
And of course, this isn't a statement on God's character as though somehow his sovereignty and his power are getting stronger through history. That's impossible. No change is possible in God whatsoever. But rather, God's character and his purposes for his creation and for sending his son to redeem this creation come increasingly into view. And so this is why the preaching of the gospel must be the non-negotiable starting point for all our efforts. God is determined to get glory, and he does this through the preaching of the gospel of his son, the kingdom of heaven, repentance in Jesus. And notice again, Jesus doesn't say, repent so the kingdom can get here. Repent so we can make me president. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, repent so the kingdom of God can get here. The cause and effect actually works the other way. He's saying, essentially, the kingdom is here. Surrender. The kingdom is here. Repent. Okay? Therefore, you must surrender because I am here. I showed up. Preaching repentance involves an acknowledgement of who God is and of who we are. And repentance is indeed a form of surrender. And surrender, of course, is the only sane option we have when we are confronted with superior power. That's the only sane option. To go to war against God makes no sense. Repentance makes all sense. Submit to the one who came to be the light of the world. It goes on in verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so now Jesus is calling the first of his disciples who are fishermen. Uh, And one of the reasons that the northern region of Galilee was tended to be looked down upon, again, was because it was rural, it was rugged, it was tough, and it was away from the more refined cities of the south. Uh, and this, no, this region was known for producing top-quality soldiers, tough people, but it was not known for producing statesmen or eloquent poets or, or so forth. But Jesus here shows that he is pleased to work with very common blue-collared men as he assembles his disciples. And the kind of work that these men were involved in is fitting for the ministry that Christ is calling them to. Fishers of men is an apt description. And today we often associate fishing with leisure, right? You can go out on the boat and it's a nice day and fish small water and I've got my trolling motor with an iPilot and you can just sit there and troll and I've got a trolling motor. But that's not at all what fishing was like back then. There was no trolling motor. There was no uh, leisure activity. This was hard work. Being a fisherman meant you're out in the elements, you're often wet, you're often cold, you're doing physical work, you're manually controlling a boat, you're pulling on nets, you're fixing nets, and then when you're back to shore, it's not like the work is over. The glory of catching the fish is done, but now you've got to clean these fish, you've got to bring them to market. So in one sense, your work has just begun. This isn't a leisure activity, this is, far, this is involved physical work. It's time-consuming. And being fishers of men is similar. You don't have to spend very much time trying to disciple a friend or a neighbor or maybe even your own children, and you realize this isn't just glory. Okay? This isn't just uh, Billy Graham going up and preaching at Yankee Stadium and, and a bunch of converts come. There's often work that goes into it. We, we see those big events and we're awestruck. But think about this. 
Think of the importance of the guy who led Billy Graham to the Lord. Does anyone know his name? I don't. I don't. Okay? It's not all just glory, but that guy had just as big a role to play uh, in God's purposes as anyone else. But it's behind the scenes. And fishing and being a fisher of men works the same way. Just because someone comes to know Christ and repents of their sins and comes into the kingdom of heaven uh, doesn't mean everything's just a breeze after that, right? It often involves lots of messy situations and working with difficult decisions uh, and being alongside someone, putting your arm around them and helping them through uh, different things. It is involved work. It's not just glory. And so while there's a saying uh, that used to be quite popular back, well, maybe 100 or 200 years ago, that uh, a, a hot sun and a slow mule have led to many a call to ministry. Okay? Ministry is what soft men do because the sun is hot. Uh, but that's not at all the kind of ministry Jesus is engaged in. This is hard work. Being a fisher of men is going to be hard work. And it's fitting that he gets blue-collar guys involved in this work. In verse 21, Zebedee's sons, James and John, are mending their nets. And this might be a detail that we're quick to look over. But there again, think about the the non-glorious behind-the-scenes work that's often uh, important. They're being good stewards. They're doing the work of maintenance in between the glorious work of pulling in lots of fish. And so for us too, often in our various spheres of vocation, our regular callings or things that are related to ministry, are we mending our own nets? Are we willing to do the non-glorious stuff behind the scenes that's going to yield a harvest down the road? Are we reading the Word on our own time, internalizing the Word of God? Are we willing to be discipled by other people? Are we putting ourselves in a situation where we can? What about leading our own families? Are we taking care of our own families, mending that little or tending to that little church before we go outside to do the big and glorious work? And our work is much more effective if we're willing to do these mundane, behind-the-scene tasks rather than just hunting for glory on day one. I'm thinking about this. I thought about, I think it was last summer, Clint and me had a bear hunting spot down in the south, uh, and we were busy, you know, going every week, checking cameras, filling bait, doing all this work. And then one day after chores, our nephew, de- or my nephew, asked if he could come along to check things out as we went to this bear hunting spot. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we finished chores, he hopped in the truck with us, uh, and we got there, and there was a bear at our bait. And the bear saw us, and he ran up the tree, and he was there. And Clint just stepped out of the truck, got a gun, shot it, Dropped to the ground, we threw it in the back of the truck, and off we were. (laughs) The whole thing took about two minutes. Okay, Uh, and we—I was very intentional about telling my nephew this isn't how hunting works. (laughs) Okay, you don't just show up to your site, shoot your animal, throw it on the back of the truck, and then drive home. There was hours spent baiting and watching behavior, learning when the bear shows up, uh, watching cameras, all that. Okay, this is like the kind of the mending the network. Setting up chairs. If I see young men or young ladies doing behind-the-scenes stuff, that's important. Okay? Uh, authority naturally flows to those who are willing to take responsibility. If we just grasp at authority, it won't come. And I would suggest the same thing for young men in marriage or leading a family. Authority comes as you take responsibility. If you just grab at authority, it will not come. Two higher-profile examples of this that I've seen with my own eyes uh, where a few years ago, a minister friend and me went to uh, what's called the Grace Agenda. It was a large conference, a number of Christian speakers, some pretty big names. And we stayed for church the Sunday morning. 
Uh, and we worshiped at Christ Church, and that's where Douglas Wilson is pastor. He was one of the speakers at the conference, fairly well-known, high-profile guy, and there was lots of visitors. There was probably at least a thousand people at this conference. Uh, and after church, he wasn't there milling around with all the big names. You know where I saw him? At the back of the church with a little steel bucket of Hershey's Kisses talking to the kids, okay? Because Pastor Doug gives the kids a Hershey's Kiss on the way out of church. Another high-profile example I've seen is uh, John Piper, a well-known pastor. One of his sons very publicly left the faith. And here's a man with international reach in his ministry, and he went to his elders and he said, if I'm disqualified from the ministry, I'm willing to step down. And they determined, because this was an adult son, he was not disqualified from the ministry, but he stepped on. But that's real humility. That's not grasping at glory. Okay? That's the kind of stuff uh, that separates human glory from doing the necessary work uh, to be ready for a higher stage. And these men are mending their nets. But in both cases, in both sets of brothers, whether it's Simon and Andrew or James and John, they're said to immediately leave their work to follow Jesus. And this is the fitting response. When the king of heaven and earth offers you a summons, this isn't an optional take it or leave it proposition. The gospel is not just an invitation, it's a command. If Jesus says come, come. And clearly, the Holy Spirit was at work in these men. It appears that they have been born again by the Spirit of God, and they had hearts that were not only willing, but eager to follow Jesus, to drop everything and follow Him. And so the response of these disciples creates an opportunity for us here to make application examine our own hearts. What kind of hearts do we have? Do we have the old stony hearts that don't want to come, or maybe are dragging our feet as we do? Or have we been born again by the Spirit of God with living hearts that are eager to come? Verse 23 through 25, it says, And then he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus had a multifaceted ministry which included preaching, acts of mercy, and working miracles. And in the providence of God, there had been a system of synagogues established throughout this region. Uh, And this happened again going back to this intertestamental period when Alexander uh, and the Greeks were in control of this area. Alexander had tremendous respect for the Jews and he set up a system of synagogues uh, in cooperation with them that any town that had 10 Jewish men that were eligible for corporate worship could establish a synagogue and they could meet for worship uh, in those regions where they could not get to the temple for worship. So again, God has set the table with a system of synagogues for corporate worship where Jesus can go in and preach. And Jesus walks in, and again, note the nature of his preaching. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's brought this kingdom light down with him when he came to earth. And his ministry and his divine nature are demonstrated by his ability to heal and to cast out demons. It's a validation of who he is. Word gets around to Syria which is north even of Galilee, it's another country, Uh, and to the south, to Jerusalem and Judea. So again, to use the Manitoba analogy, back down to the cities in the south. 
And the healings and the exorcisms that Jesus performs demonstrate that the kingdom has indeed come down from heaven with him. And it has invaded earth. In one somewhat parallel account in Luke eleven twenty, when Jesus is put to the test, he says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, he is announcing that he has brought this kingdom down with him, and now is the time to repent. He is validated by his miracles. Jesus came down to a world groaning under the weight of sin, and he shows us early signs of redeeming us from the burden of sin and putting, pushing it back in the opposite direction. And this work is clearly not yet completed, so it's premature for us, on the basis of Jesus' miracles, to presume health and ease for all our days. But Christ most certainly establishes this reality and gives us a glimpse of what the coming creation is like. And seeing the Bible, presenting overlapping ages, so that we don't get confused on... And we see this all the time, right? We see this... Um, you know, whether it's with nature or, I, I know in one case where, uh, where someone was talking about nursing a newborn baby and it, you know, there's these hormone interactions between the baby and the mom and so mom will always nurse just the right amount for the baby and it sounds so perfect. And there's enough reality that we see in how creation is designed to be eternal and to work perfectly, right? So we see that design is there and yet so often it doesn't work that way. <laughs> So often it does break down. So we can see even in the times in the world that we live in, there's clearly the design of perfection and of eternity is there, and yet it's broken. We can see both of these things. Uh, And to think clearly about God's purposes for his creation helps us to see those things clearly so we don't uh, miss the track, that we don't expect perfection or that we are without hope. The age to come is free from disease Pain, demonic oppression, epilepsy, paralysis, all the things that Jesus is healing. And so it makes sense that Jesus starts the work of pushing back against those things which so obviously are evidence of the fact that the world has fallen. And just like everything else Jesus does, we should never assume that his miracles are just isolated party tricks just to get attention. They mean something. The the map that he travels, his sermons, his miracles, his public persona are all very intentional teaching tools that are rooted in the grand story of redemption that start in Genesis 3.15 and are wrapped up at his return at the end of history. So our goal here isn't just to affirm the fact of Jesus' parables or the fact of his miracles, but to understand the meaning of his travels, the meaning of what he's doing with his miracles. What's the significance of them? Think even of the word significance. What word do you see in the word significance? Sign, right? It points to beyond itself. It points to something else. And again, to go back to our trip to South Dakota, if we just got into South Dakota and then there's a sign for Mount Rushmore and we line our family up there and get a picture taken at the sign of Mount Rushmore, has our, has our journey been completed? No, it's not. That sign is significant because it points to something beyond itself. Okay? So these aren't just isolated party tricks. Jesus is showing us something about the age to come. So what have we seen here? Well, so often God does not work according to our expectations. That much we should know. Jesus goes to unlikely places, like the north, like Galilee, like Capernaum, to a blue-collar port town, and he works with unlikely people, but everything he does is intentional. 
Every detail of Christ's ministry is significant in the way that it touches the broader story of redemption. Whether this involves going to the remote parts of Israel, which have been especially cursed and filled with Gentiles, whether it's announcing the gospel and a kingdom that are different than the ones that the people are expecting, whether it's the fact that his gospel involves repentance and not the way that we think these things should work, Jesus is intentional, although unexpected many times. So we see that the light of heaven has stepped into the darkness that has eclipsed the creation, and we are to announce the same message he did until the darkness has been drowned out by the light. So repentance for sin, a gospel of free grace, and an unshakable kingdom are what we announce. That's what Christ has put in our hands. And the prompt response of the disciples to follow Jesus is instructive for us as well. Are we content to hear the gospel with our ears only and then walk away? Or do we have hearts that are ready and willing to follow Christ when he calls us? Perhaps we're saved. We've received the gospel, but maybe we've stagnated in our Christian lives. Perhaps personal Bible reading or putting sin to death or family devotions or corporate worship aren't the priority they once were. So maybe we've stagnated. But here again, the readiness of the disciples is a great indicator of how Jesus is going to use them in his ministry. Prompt obedience is a sign of joy. Where grudging obedience is often external and actually it's frequently a sign of disobedience. And so let's all resolve to consider the quick response of the disciples and the joy that comes from prompt obedience as we announce repentance and the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to uh, thank you for your word. I want to thank you that the parts of your ministry even are not random. You go to the places that uh, you have deemed significant. You preach a message and you say things and do things that are significant that are there to teach us, to connect us to the big story of redemption. Lord, I pray that each one here would have eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, to be enraptured by your word, to be caught up in it, to see uh, what you are doing, what do these things mean, uh, and then what is our response in light of it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us today and through the rest of the week to see the significance that you are true north, you are the light of the world, and that we would structure our lives in light of that. Thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. So the charge is this. In the providence of God, the scene has been perfectly set for Christ's ministry. The map, the political situation, and the location of people are all perfect for Christ to perform his ministry. Christ is the light that overcomes the darkness, which has swallowed Jew and Gentile alike. And he comes preaching repentance and the kingdom of God. In surrender comes our joy with our newfound ability to see the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The king is polluting the shadows, engaging in the long war of pushing the curse all the way back for the joy of his people, the supremacy of his name, and the glory of his father. Are we ready to put our own projects aside and join him in his work like Andrew and Peter? Are we faithful stewards willing to do ordinary work out of the limelight, like James and John? This week, let's prayerfully consider those tasks we need to put aside and those tasks we need to pick up for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father 
who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. And go in peace.